From our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, and with me today, as usual, are my illustrious co-hosts, Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute, just down the road from me here in Washington, and Chris Jackson at Proteum over in London. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Baxter. Jen is the head of engineering at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers in the United Kingdom, and she definitely knows a thing or two about the technical side of the hydrogen space, so we're looking forward to getting the engineer's point of view on the rapidly evolving hydrogen landscape. Before we jump right into today's episode, I wanted to quickly remind our listeners that we have recently changed our contact details here at Everything About Hydrogen. And for those of you who would like to get in touch with us, our new email address is info at h2podcast.com. So if you have any questions for us or our guests, please don't hesitate to drop us an email there going forward. That said, for those of you who prefer to communicate with us in 280 characters or less at a time, you can still find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen as well. And with those admin matters taken care of, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jennifer Baxter on today's show. Let's get started. So welcome back, guys. Good to see your smiling faces, although Patrick's is actually a uh, map of Africa, which is a little bit interesting. The recording platform we use uh, over here does allow us to have a video feed, although it's not recorded. If you turn your microphone off, it puts up a map of the world. Patrick's is, for some reason, on my screen, centered over the continent of Africa, which um, I'm not sure the relevance here. But uh, with that said, we'll just jump right in, guys. Big news this week, although, of course, uh, with the delay on the recording and publication, the Hindenburg uh, Research Report, which I put in quotes, the Hindenburg Report on Nikola and uh, their claim that uh, Nikola may have presented things inaccurately. Uh, They actually claim, Hindenburg claims they lied about some of the things that they're doing. We have no opinion on that on the show, but uh, there has been market reaction. There have been views thrown back and forth. Uh, it's a relevant conversation. So I kind of wanted to get your guys' views on what's going on there. Chris, do you want to be the first to jump into this into this <laughs> issue, or should we start with Patrick? Yeah, temptation yeah. to throw Patrick <laughs> under a bus. Um, yeah, I think one thing obviously to note is that it has landed, and I think that's the reason why we felt at least we needed to acknowledge that it had landed um, without, as you say, commenting on the piece. Um, I think the interesting thing has been, you know, we can watch the market responses. So I think initially there was a reasonably strong sell-off um, in both, and then both have uh, both Nell and in Nicola, and both actually did recover, um, reason, but not fully, but they did both recover after. So it does appear that there's still, um, that it's going to be quite interesting dynamic sort of process for the next couple of weeks, maybe even months, to see how that comes out. I was chatting to someone um, about this when it came out, and they pointed out to me that, you know, almost every single entrepreneur that's stretching to try and change and do something different has had some kind of story come out at some point, which, you know, maybe suggests they tried to be a little bit bold or ambitious than they were, you know, maybe a, a phone model that doesn't actually do everything that it's meant to at the time, but does later or a car model that, you know, has one or two kinks that, you know, still need to be ironed out later. So this is, you know, to an extent, this is kind of what happens, I think is what, you know, a couple of people have said to me, and I think there is some truth in that. Um, but I guess there are bigger questions in the document, which is why I think the market's responded the way it has. There, there, are hazard, there are hazards around hype, right? That's, it's, not, it's not an uncommon practice uh, to make bold predictions, right? And uh, sometimes you're not quite there yet and you're planning to get there. We're not going to weigh in on, on where they reach the legal definitions on that here. But it's, uh, this is a challenge for, for a company that's really making a big name for itself. And uh, so it's an interesting topic, right? It's something that needs to, needs to be addressed. I don't know, pa- Patrick... What do you think? What is, I mean, does this surprise you? I mean, this seems to be a growing pain of companies that claim to be disrupting, right? This is perhaps not all that uncommon, uh, but it's the news of the day today in, uh, in the hydrogen world, yeah? Yeah, like, like you know, I think I, I read something that, that, you know, similar reports were done on Tesla and, and Apple and, and various others. So I think this, this probably kind of comes with the, the territory of short sellers releasing reports, right? Sure. They wouldn't be very good at short selling if they didn't do uh, this kind of thing, right? I mean, that's kind of their, that's their bread and butter. Yeah. So, And perhaps this is the growing, this is a growing pain of going public as a company like this, right? 
I mean, look, I think the one thing that is really important here is that I think, you know, the fact that Hyundai have fuel cell trucks already on the road, the fact that there are now multiple companies that are working in this space, so people like Daimler who are looking at fuel cell truck options, or there's people like uh, H2X and, and other Heisen that are, are out there, um, you know, if there weren't other people out there and other people with units on the road, I think this would be a very different discussion um, because Nicola did, you know, for a period of time have almost the monopoly in terms of being able to talk about and talk to the opportunity in this space. And I think, you know, in that context, if this was being discussed a year ago, year and a half ago, it could have been quite profound. Um, and it could have had quite a significant impact. I think in a sense, um, it's part of a sign of market maturity, although maybe not not quite there yet, but it's part of the market maturity that we haven't seen this necessarily hit every single um, share across the industry. Um, just thinking of a sort of another comparison, when the uh, Norwegian um, refueling station uh, incident happened at Kjolber, I think almost all hydrogen companies took a hit. Certainly, I think almost all the electrolyzer companies took a hit and the stock exchange because people kind of looked at that and said that that would have a broader knock-on impact for the whole industry, even though it was one supplier on one territory. We, we didn't see the same thing really um, in this instance. We saw people immediately tied to Nikola and Nikola being affected, but we didn't see the broader chain. I suppose that is interesting to me. Um, again, not commenting on the specifics of the case, but it's interesting that the market is now able to kind of see Nikola not as everything associated with that mobility story, but rather as one of several. And and that probably hints the fact that it is a growing market and there are more people there. And, and that's very different now than it was a few years ago. Sure. And it comes on the heels, right? It's literally, what, two two days earlier, three days earlier, comes on the heels of an announcement that uh, the GM is taking 11% of Nikola at $2 billion and has a contract with them or presumptive contract with them to to build these these trucks uh, as, the, as the OEM, right? So it's been a mixed week, mixed week for Nikola, yeah? Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll just have to see how that shakes out, right? But at the moment, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster this week. That being said, really quickly, guys, uh, before we get Jen on the line, in a less controversial but exciting topic area, the French government has stepped up and decided that they are going to do a good deal of initiatives and projects and policy work around promoting hydrogen, right? So let's uh, let's step on a, on a more light light uh, lighthearted topic and uh, what do you think it, have you had a chance to read through it yet patrick i'm not in the french policy i'm in the middle of the iea's uh, etp 2020 right. so but yeah like i saw the headline kind of numbers and whatnot it's you know that's how i make my judgments dude just based strictly on headlines maybe a sub headline here and there so that's that's my level Let's put it in the broader context between what was uh, announced in Germany, between this announcement in France, and between the um, the announcement I think in Spain. What was it, a couple couple of weeks ago? Well, maybe a little longer. Um, Portugal, Spain, because Portugal also did an announcement, didn't they? Did they? Okay. Yeah. Well, well there we go. Um, yeah, like we're seeing very very substantial commitments to to moving down this this pathway. Um, so, and that's consistent with what we've heard out of the European Commission. And, you know, when you see national policies or national plans aligning with broader kind of, uh, you know, kind of overarching kind of vision as well. Yeah, it's encouraging. Very encouraging. How about you, Chris? Well, it's also interesting. It's it's almost, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's the same sum as the Germans. I think it's 7 billion euros, right? I thought it was lower than that, but uh, I don't know. But it, it was a sizable sum nonetheless. No, I think I mean I only comment on that because um, it, there was there have been discussions in other countries about how you said target. Yes, it's seven billion euros. Um, oh, there you go. See, um, which, which but of course what's quite interesting is that it's not more. It's the same, and I know, and that's quite interesting insofar as it's sort of not a yeah. There's quite often a one-upmanship game with countries and policy announcements. They're like, okay, well that country did this, I'm going to do bigger, right? And I guess it's quite an interesting part of the EU dynamic that it's kind of mirroring, right? It's kind of showing. The two biggest economies sort of in the euro sort of, as it were, lockstep together that hydrogen is a key part of the transition. They're both putting in 7 billion euros. They're both putting in a strategy and a plan. I think that is quite interesting. And I think it, what that actually does tell me as a messaging is that a lot of the reports we've seen around the European Commission's view on hydrogen and its role in the European energy system is the two major economies that, as it were, are the crux or the kind of anchor for the EU as a political entity are saying, yes, this is what we think is going to happen, and they're both mirroring funds into it. Um, that's basically, to me, saying that the largest single market in the world has effectively said, yes, this is kind of where we're going to go. And that is really exciting. You know, even though it's not all 28 countries that have a policy, 
enough of the key players and certainly the two main key players both have gone down that, re- that direction. And I mean, we were just hearing in the UK that um, there's definitely going to be a hygiene strategy released uh, next year. That was been, that's sort of confirmed by one of the business secretaries. And I'm almost certain that that is because of France and Germany. And I can't believe that um, that is not going to have influences on other countries in the world now that are looking there going, right, Europe has basically said this is where we want to go. And that will drive others as well. So, um, you know, I think that in itself is also hugely important and interesting. That's why it is really exciting. Um, and I think then we will get to a point probably in the next year and a half where, you know, it'll be harder to find a country that doesn't have a hydrogen policy than to find one uh, that does, so to say. Well, and not to be nitpicky, Chris, but again, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think taken in some, the German plan is actually 9 billion euros, is it not? With the 2 billion going uh, for international for international investment. So really the German, the Germans set the bar high, man. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, yeah, no, 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 but, but they're, but they're perhaps right. different. Seven million domestic and two billion international. Yeah, sure. But right. I, I, like I said, Chris, this is being nitpicky. This is one of the few times where I said, where I knew something you said. Anyway, let's, uh, let's very, uh, very, very, very quickly, Chris, uh, Jennifer's going to call in here in a second. Real quick, 30-second background. She's a, a friend of yours, yeah, over at iMechi, and maybe a little bit of an intro. Uh, of course, we'll ask her to introduce herself, but if you've got 30 seconds, let's do it. Sure. So, Jen Baxter is the chief engineer at the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. Um, she is uh, one of the most, most knowledgeable people I can think of uh, on the context of net zero and extremely well-informed on hydrogen. She also was an advisor for the Welsh government and has done a lot of work advising in the UK. Full disclosure, she's also an advisory board member for Proteum, so um, she gets my questions the whole time and gets me harassing her with guidance and advice regularly. So um, I'm delighted to have her on the show. I think her opinions are great, and I can't wait to hear what she has to say and to share those views with our listeners. Sounds good. Well, let's get her on the line. Okay, so Jen, if you could maybe uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, your position at iMechE, and uh, and what you do there, that would be great. Sure. So I'm Dr. Jen Baxter. I'm the chief engineer at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, and our HQ is in London, but we are a global organization, and we represent around 120,000 professional engineers working across mechanical engineering sectors. My own background is I have three degrees in environmental engineering. The first one is a straightforward environmental engineering degree. I have a degree in sustainability planning and environmental policy, and my PhD is in the production of hydrogen from waste. So I've taken all of that experience. I've worked for the government, for business, for charities, and for the last six years, I've been working at iMechE as one of their lead engineers. So as I basically said to you in the brief, Andrew, Jen's a boss. I am, you know... (laughs) Uh, and I mean, Jen, I, one of the things that I thought was would be really interesting to chat about a little bit with you today is, you know, uh, often I think in the hydrogen space, we kind of tend to look at it more on the chemical engineering side, but it'd be quite interesting to kind of get the view from a mechanical engineering perspective around why hydrogen is interesting. And I guess, um, you know, from your broad membership base, what are the sort of questions, what are the kind of concerns that people in the mechanical engineering world are starting to think about when they're looking at hydrogen and where the transition is coming? And um, yeah, because I also think people don't realize how broad it is because you guys cover automotive as well as uh, power sector, as well as heat. So maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of flavor and context to that and some of the work that I think you've been doing in the space. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because the Everyone's talking about hydrogen at the moment. It's everywhere. But the point is, it's the question is, what doesn't hydrogen do rather than what does it do? Because it really has an opportunity to play a part in every aspect of our engineering system. So we have members who work in the power industry who are so they're very interested in the amount of power we're going to need to produce hydrogen. So and that's not just through electrolysis. That's whether you're using an electrical generation or whether you're doing steam methane reforming, for example, that also requires power. So it's not a a single issue. We then have members who work in gas distribution. So they're interested in how this gas could replace methane within our heating systems, particularly in the UK, where we have a very broad gas distribution. We have people who use hydrogen as feedstock, whether they're working in chemical industry and elsewhere, and they're very interested in how they can improve that hydrogen to reduce the emissions that they currently have, for example, in 
the production of uh, petroleum. So there's there's a lot of options as to where it's coming from. So we, as you say, we have an automobile division, very interested in how we use it as a fuel powertrain system and fuels group as well, who are looking at the very specific issues around the use of hydrogen in electric vehicles and actually the use of hydrogen as a combustion fuel on its own in your com- more conventional combustion engine. So there's all sorts of aspects of the work that mechanical engineers do where hydrogen plays a part. Jenna, I kind of wanted to uh, dive down a little bit on your particular specialty, and I believe what you said you got your your PhD in, which would be hydrogen from waste, um, which I think, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but Jen would be the first specialist in that area that we've uh, had on the show thus far. So uh, I don't know if you could maybe uh, give a broad overview of of sort of what that sector looks like. I know that's a big question, but maybe a little bit of, of what that might look like today and what kind of applications you're seeing out there. Sure. There are a few different applications for this, and it has changed in the 10 years since I um, did my PhD. So if you take a very basic issue around, for example, waste from the farming industry and where we recognize that now a lot of biomethane is produced, there's also opportunities to use that to produce hydrogen. That's a really sort of straightforward way of producing hydrogen. But again, you have to ask yourself questions there from a net zero point of view, whether it's actually necessary to do that. You can then look at things like landfill gas. So we have a lot of cap landfills here in the UK. They are producing gases and that gas is methane. So again, you can take that gas and you can separate it into its component part of carbon, carbon monoxide and dioxide and hydrogen. And you can then use that hydrogen separately. So it's a really good way of maintaining the use of those wastes. Other areas that you can look at are, for example, in gasification. So that is producing a partially um, heated up and you get a gas from that. And from that, you can take out the hydrogen as well. And then finally, um, although this probably isn't all of them, there's anaerobic digestion. So that is the type of activity that you might get at a sewage works or with waste food, where you're allowing it to digest and it produces more methane. Methane is very uh, popular gas, but also you can actually create an environment in anaerobic digestion and in dark fermentation where it produces hydrogen in greater volumes. So you can actually adapt what you do and how you do your process to produce hydrogen. And Jim, maybe picking up on that a little bit, I mean, um, it's, it is a discussion theme that I've heard starting to emerge, which is sort of around this bioenergy and hydrogen discussion. And a lot of people would just make the case, well, if I already have biogas um, from anaerobic digestion or from waste streams, why would I not just use that directly as a green gas? Why would I, uh, why would I accept the um, conversion efficiency losses to, to do that process? And I just kind of wondered, what's the, yeah, are, are there any kind of obvious technical engineering um, benefits or challenges from doing that straight conversion piece? You know, I'm thinking perhaps for the gas turbine side, I guess landfill gas must have all sorts of uh, sort of uh, pollutants in it, which make it quite difficult from an engineering perspective. Whereas perhaps pure hydrogen is a bit cleaner. I don't know. But it'd be interesting to get your kind of views on that. I mean, what, why bother converting is at the, at the sort of base bit? If you've already got a green fuel, why would you go to that next step? And I guess that comes down to what the market is, what you want to use it for. So there are obvious opportunities just to use biogases. Um, there are other times when you may want to use that biogas to support an industry that uses hydrogen, in which case you may then want to separate it out. So it just has a, a end user element to using waste for the production of hydrogen. But if you are creating greater markets around hydrogen and you want to create uh, you know, industrial clusters that are using more hydrogen, then you can start to look at what does your local incinerator do? What does your local landfill do? Uh, what does the local farm do in order to support those industries? I don't think there's a straight answer as to we should definitely take all of this biogas and turn it into hydrogen. I think it very much depends on what your goal is at the end. Ultimately, if we're looking at a a very low carbon or net zero uh, result, depending on which country you live in, then they all contribute to that. So the result of having biogases and making sure that you use all of your resources to the maximum means that whether it becomes hydrogen or whether it stays as a biomethane, it doesn't matter. They're still contributing to the same goal. So Jen, just a just kind of a quick quick question. Given given the breadth of kind of applications or or generation opportunities, what are what are you seeing now as kind of the the kind of the early movers or or maybe the uh, the more exciting hype uh, kind of applications around these biogas kind of to to hydrogen strands? So I think the main areas where this is coming up, and I think this is where I get to talk about one of my pet areas, which is sustainability, is that you allow opportunity for decentralization of the generation of energy for uses in different regions. 
Uh, if you have a remote region, re requires different types of fuels for different applications, whether it be for um, use in vehicles or whether it be for a, you know, distillery opportunities or whatever it is, they, that allows you to access your local resources in order to generate hydrogen and biomethane for different purposes. And I think that opportunity to build local energy low carbon energy regions is really exciting because we talk about it and we have talked about it for years but in the uk it doesn't really exist it may be that uh, in the usa and canada you have actually got more localized regions i think here in the uk we've had a very centralized energy system whether it's fuel whether it's electricity whether it's gas for a very long time and these hydrogen is almost an enabler for these other technologies to kind of be picked up. So once we can get that moving, we can run local metros from hydrogen. There's all sorts of things that can happen. I know here in South Wales, we have ideas around South Wales Metro and people are talking about electric buses, hydrogen trains, hydrogen buses. There's all sorts of options. And if we can enable our local farming community and our local industrial community to support that, we'll have a really exciting cluster here in South Wales. That regional kind of dynamic aspect is, is kind of a, a, it seems like it's a big piece. And, and just a bit of a, a follow on question to that, you know, when we're looking at these, these kind of, uh, you know, kind of bio and waste generation strands, one of the consistent questions that I, I, I come across, it, you know, with dealing with industrial kind of manufacturers or producers is around the scale issues and, and whether the regional sensitivities or the, the kind of uh, scale of production will actually be sufficient to match their needs or how that kind of how this dynamic plays into a, a kind of a broader kind of either hydrogen market or as a as a mechanism for changing our existing natural gas markets. You know, do you have a sense of, of kind of maybe the distinctions in the storyline versus what we've seen with other kind of biofuel uh, strands and, and kind of stories in the past, which have maybe struggled a little bit more? So I think this is a, an interesting question of scale because understanding the scale of energy requirements, I think, is very difficult for the majority of people. I think even when I think about it myself, it's really difficult to understand exactly how much energy we're going to need for different applications, particularly as those applications change in the future. So one area where I don't think we focus as much on at the moment that could help support the generation of new markets is in the transformation from grey, brown hydrogen, however you want to refer to it, use in industry into the, the greener hydrogen and hydrogen that is potentially produced from biogas. And that allows those smaller markets that already exist to gradually begin to grow because there are already people there who require this hydrogen and it offers them an opportunity to decarbonize. You then have to get in place all of the regulations that you need in order to allow those engineering or bigger engineering applications to actually begin to transition. And at the moment, for example, in the gas grid, if we want to put hydrogen into our gas distribution network, we don't have the regulations in place in order to do that yet. They're still in the early stages of developing them. So we, we know that it's going to take us quite a significant amount of time before we have those gas safety regulations ready to allow us to deliver the story that we're telling people. So there's still a lot of work to do. And Jen, actually, maybe on that, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting um, you to talk about the regulations piece on, on the gas grid network. I mean, the other regulation piece as well, I guess, that's interesting is that hydrogen, in at least in countries like the UK, and it's like different, different markets, hydrogen is not considered a combustion fuel in the UK from a regulatory perspective. Um, you know, it is considered as an industrial gas because that's what it is. So from a tax perspective, um, in the current framework, you pay a higher higher VAT rate than you do for other fuels. Um, and also from a regulatory perspective, if you look at um, combustion plants, hydrogen is not um, a specific carve-out. So there isn't a sort of NOx level that it has to meet or, uh, you know, a certain uh, air quality standard. It comes under, I think, an, an other fuels category under the mid-size and large-size combustion plant directives. How is the engineering kind of well contributing into that policy piece? Because I think, you know, you actually do do quite a lot of work on that, but I don't think many people realise how much work the engineering community actually does on policy and how important that is. And maybe you can talk about the areas of policy that you think are being neglected and where your members and yourself are actually pushing government to pay more attention. Yeah, so there's a particular issue, as many people will know, in the idea of um, phasing out the sale of new combustion engines for diesel, petrol, and actually hybrid vehicles as well. And in the UK, this is something that 
we're aiming to achieve by 2035 and you know potentially certain areas you could you could do sooner than that and one of the things that we've been looking at is that in order to achieve more rapid decarbonisation or re reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and those other particulates and NOx that you find in very busy urban environments is that there is a parallel piece of work around using sustainable fuels. And those fuels may be biodiesels, uh, biogasoline, they may be hydrogen fuels that can actually be used within combustion engines for different vehicles much sooner than perhaps the 2035 phase out date. And that will allow a much more rapid decarbonisation of our transport sector. So a lot of the work that we do and we've done in partnership very recently in response to, to government consultations is to identify exactly what those requirements are over the next sort of 10 years that we would need to put into place how many vehicles, the type of vehicle, what's the relationship between a plug-in hybrid and, and the necessity for that versus an all-electric vehicle, whether it be hydrogen or whether it be a straightforward electricity uh, powered vehicle. So there's there's a lot of work that engineers are trying to understand in how we can do this better and faster and with minimal impact both not just to people's lives, but also to the amount of resources that potentially we need to use in order to deliver it. So they're in an all electric world, there's a lot of resources that are required in the build of batteries for vehicles, in the build of charging stations. There's a lot of resources that will be required in order to connect all of those charging places. And actually within hydrogen and some synthetic fuels and sustainable alternative fuels, there's a far less demand on those resources. And so we want as engineers to improve the processes and not to sort of continue to damage the planet by delivering clean solutions that are perhaps having an impact elsewhere. So it's a big challenge for us. Building off of that a little bit, I'd be curious to hear from the engineer's perspective as well, Jen, and forgive me if this is a simplistic formulation of the question, but based on what you were just saying, like from, your, from an engineer's perspective, in terms of different applications and use cases for clean hydrogen and hydrogen in general, do you guys see, do you see uh, the automotive and transport sector as sort of the low-hanging fruit in that decarbonization timeline using hydrogen? Or is are there other sectors that you think are equally right for that opportunity in the shorter term, all relatively speaking, of course? But do you guys see transport as the as the, the quickest and most uh, most accessible first-term use case? Or do you see industry heavy industry decarbonization as the, as the best use case and so on and so forth? So I think there's a few bits to that question. And one of the obvious ones is in energy storage. And when I say energy storage, I don't mean necessarily for reuse in terms of producing electricity, but actually just to take on board all of that energy that has come from our renewables. And how you use that hydrogen, you know, it's neither here nor there. It just sort of it depends on, on what you've produced it for. But that then gives us that opportunity to start to think much more clearly about how we can use it in hydrogen vehicles. And I think for the bigger vehicles, the, the heavy ones where adding a really heavy battery to push it around is a sort of, you, so you, you know, adding more and more weight, so bigger and bigger batteries to push around these big vehicles, it offers a better solution to that. And so we should be considering big, big transport buses, HGVs, they need to go first. We need to, to look at how we do that. And at the same time, we're then enabling greater penetration of our renewables into that sector. So there's a connection then in the system, which is from an engineering point of view, is a really perfect opportunity to identify how we start to bring together those what have been siloed aspects of the energy system in the past. And um, Jen, maybe if I come in with a, a question, one of the things that I uh, think is kind of slightly unique also about having you on the show here is that most of our guests are unequivocally um, focused on hydrogen. It's what they do, that's their bread and butter every day, that's what their company is is often entirely focused on. And obviously, your, you know, hydrogen is, is, is obviously a very exciting area, but it's not all that IMIKI does or all that IMIKI is. And so, um, you know, hydrogen is one of many components in this discussion around net zero. So it may be also quite interesting to get your view or the IMIKI view on kind of where you actually see hydrogen fitting into the context around net zero. And, you know, again, I guess from the panelist side, we have this, this sort of thing, I guess, we can't help where we almost go, oh, you can't talk about net zero, that's about hydrogen. It's got to be the most exciting, interesting bit about it. But actually, you know, giving a bit of that distance perspective, is hydrogen actually the most interesting piece of that broader, how do we do net zero? Uh, or is there actually something more interesting that you think is maybe being neglected? I know this is a hydrogen podcast, but I, I can't help but ask that obvious question. Okay, so let's take a really recent example. Now, I don't know if you heard about the WWF report on the reduction of species that we're seeing that basically nature is in free fall, it's disappearing at a rate unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And as engineers, there's an element of 
how does conservation and energy production fit together? In everything that we do, we need huge amount of energy. So do we start, we need to start thinking about how we build energy and where it is built and how much room it takes up and what impact it has on our natural environment much more clearly. If we're losing everything from penguins in South America and on the Falkland Islands right across to hedgehogs in my garden because of the way that we are building, we need to think, how do we compact our energy? How do we localize it? How do we make sure that we aren't ripping apart our environment and those habitats? So for me, a really exciting part of the net zero question and the conservation stroke sustainability question is why aren't we having much more careful conversations about how much space we are using up and where we are using that space for the production of energy? Now, it might mean that things that conventionally we see as really positive, like onshore wind, become less positive. Solar farms may become less positive because they take up a lot of space and they may interfere with environments. Things like nuclear power, which for me is a really exciting sector, might become more positive. They're compact power stations with an incredible energy density to produce our hydrogen, which is really exciting. You've got your opportunity for, you know, high heat electrolysis. And this is just, you know, fantastic. And you still have some heat left over and you'll have a whole load of power. And you do that really localized. And I just, I'm just starting to think that when we have these discussions and when we communicate with our wider groups, whether it's with the public, whether it's with government and others, that the sustainability aspects of what we do have been completely lost in the decarbonization discussion. And it's like, how do we bring that conversation back to where it needs to be? So that's kind of where I find it exciting. But it, again, it, it is about hydrogen, but not all about hydrogen. So Jen, just, just to, to jump quickly on one particular aspect or point of that, um, nuclear nuclear use nuclear power as a as a source and a, and, and I know it's 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 an area of interest and focus but just interested on you know perhaps building out the the kind of perspective because uh, we do talk a little bit about the uh, the rainbow of of hydrogen uh, generation and and you know the the actual value in that and and you know what role do you see within the the, the nuclear generation uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, profile for hydrogen production and and, and what does that you know, what do you think that adds to the system more generally from, you know, from your research? So in our 50 shades of hydrogen, where does nuclear power sit? Um, well, yellow hydrogen. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, and, and turquoise is the other one for your other, for pyrolysis, actually, Jim, which I think is you, you, pyrolysis. Yeah, I think pyrolysis, all I'm saying to me is turquoise. There you go. So we've got turquoise, we've got yellow, we've got blue, green, gray, black, brown. If anyone, by the way, listening to the show wants to add, you know, we, we can we can do a diagram, but I think we've got most of the. <laughs> we've strayed into Kristen's other <laughs> podcast, which is uh, Hydrogen for Kids, which is uh, which is the, the rainbow. Also, that's the first time I've ever heard Chris pronounce the word turquoise. I thought. I've never, I've never heard turquoise before. <laughs> but, yeah, I think Chris told me about turquoise, and I was you. just like, "This is just getting out of hand because it is borderline ridiculous." The number of different, or the the level different. I don't even know if they come in levels, the different colours. So I think you have to start talking about, you know, what's the end goal here? So the goal is low carbon. It's meeting sustainability objectives. You know, the the UN provides us with a whole load of sustainable development goals, which we broadly ignore in favour of the delivery of decarbonisation. So I think, and they're all colour coded as well, just if anyone's interested. Um, so for me, it's either low carbon or it's not. Now, that's our goal. Now, it obviously would be perfect if everything could be generated from fresh air and seawater, and that would be wonderful. But the likelihood, as we discussed before, of meeting the scale that we need with the power that we need in order to do that is quite low. So for me, the nuclear side of things provides us with you know an energy density that is something like 400,000 more times more dense than something like hydrogen i mean it's it's incredible the difference that you get and what you could do with that over the period of its life and how that will allow communities to transform themselves but we have to kind of be open to the new generation of nuclear power stations the idea of cogeneration the idea of using the heat from nuclear power stations to make hydrogen fuels but also to provide heat to communities in other countries this this is done um but 
we need to start being kind of open to different ideas if we want to achieve the goals that we are setting ourselves. I think um, here in the UK very recently, we had the results of the Citizens Climate Assembly that came out just recently, which basically says we want things to change, but not that much, but we want to feel better about what we do. And let's have some more taxes. Now, as Chris mentioned earlier, everything is taxed the wrong way around. So fossil fuels have a low rate of tax and then insulation is charged at 20% VAT and sort of solar panels have some strange uh, VAT rating as well. So it's all in the wrong order. So there has to be some way of coming back from this and saying, let's take the things that we know produce low carbon energy and let's you know take the vat off them (laughs) let's get them moving all together there doesn't need to be a vat on those things and let's take the things that pollute all of our environments and kill people you know the really big tax on those it's not rocket science you know at least i'm not talking about nuclear engineering because that's probably slightly harder than rocket science but um we are talking about the vat system which i don't think is that difficult to manage we just have to be bold with it and i think one of the things we've really lacked is courage courage not only to maybe challenge some of the status quo conventional narratives around what it means to decarbonize and what it means to have a low carbon sustainable environment but also to change what we do we don't make those systemic changes in society that allow us to move forward we've made huge changes due to covid19 why not you know just take little bits of them and apply them to our energy systems to make changes. So I think there's there's still a lot to do, but it, it is an exciting time. And I think people are more bought into it. When I started, um, I don't know, 20 something years ago, I won't say too much, um, on the road to uh, being an expert in sustainable development and sustainable engineering, nobody could care less. I mean, it really, it really didn't matter. So you were constantly fighting a losing battle. And the only thing anyone cared about was a bit of recycling. So we have come to a place where most people are talking about the global issues relating to climate change, but there's still actual work to do. Obviously, a lot that we could unpack. I think something that I do think is really interesting, though, is, um, you know, if we're talking about comparisons of hydrogen with other industries drawing from your experience. I mean, things like public perception. So around safety, around practicality, around flexibility, um, you know, hydrogen and nuclear. Actually, there's some quite interesting discussions there. Right. I, I still personally find it interesting how tolerant people in France are, for example, to nuclear how much of the Middle East seems to be quite pro-nuclear and China's very pro-nuclear, but then you have other markets like Germany and Japan that are very anti-nuclear. Um, you know, it's just kind of interesting to maybe get your view, you know, from the engineering side, is there kind of, the public seem to be much more emotive because they're not, I guess it's, it's quite conceptually difficult to understand. And so it's a much more emotive gut reaction to any new technology, right? In the same way that it doesn't seem to matter how many times people explain the Hindenburg's original fire problem wasn't to do with hydrogen, it was to do with something else. Or, you know, however many times people talk about the deaths in the coal industry versus the deaths from the nuclear industry, it, it doesn't seem to matter. It's much more emotive. Is that same emotive element also there in the engineering community as well? I mean, do you still get that quite visceral, strong reaction to certain technologies because of that quite generic perception? Or is it actually because the way that everyone thinks is much more structured and it is much more of a problem-solving community it's a completely different narrative that's being had in the general public and maybe among investors and and end consumers actually to the discussion that engineers are having when they think about what is the right technology mix and what should we be doing and and so i guess in a roundabout way you know are engineers more pro-nuclear because they're more dare i say it rational in the way that they think about it and is that also maybe then the same thing with hydrogen and things like that too so this is a tough one and it's an interesting question because i think um a propaganda of fear is very powerful, like wherever it is used. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not going to get into too much detail about what happened at various accidents around the world. But we know, for example, take Fukushima, where, you know, as you say, Japan has quite low sort of public rating for, for being pro-nuclear, that only one person died in relation to what happened at the power station. But 22,000 people died in the tsunami. And they're all completely forgotten in relation to this, you know, hydrogen that blew up at the power station. So I think, you know, we the propaganda of fear is it's very clever. And I think I'm not sure that engineers are necessarily less emotional. They will certainly look at what the detail says, how it works, um, and why what the safety case is for something and what has happened in the past and you know all of these different challenges. I think one of the things that you do find actually in relation to hydrogen is 
that because of the energy balance relationship to it, people become a bit anti-hydrogen. And that's a really interesting one because it's a clean fuel. We can use it in absolutely everything, but you have to make it. There's no, it's just there like gas or, you know, <laughs> oil. It's just there. It, you have to separate it from something else. And that requires some level of energy and quite a lot of energy. So we do have the, and then you have to compress it. And that uses a lot of energy. And, you know, in, in however you're moving it, you're going to have to compress it. So I, I think that these challenges do tend to put engineers off things where there's an excessive number of processes to go through, where there's a, a bad energy balance or where there are things like uh, excessive use of materials to achieve something. You know, engineers get a bit like, oh, you just don't need to do that. But I think equally, we've got to a point now where if you could say, well, actually, I've got almost limitless free, then who cares? Like whether you need processes to get to what you want, it doesn't matter because it's low carbon and it's free. So you might as well use it. And I think that that's where the conversation starts to change. Jen, so so the follow-up to, uh, I guess, your, your previous point tying into this is, do we actually think a little bit that the hydrogen industry is kind of taking an engineering response to how do they sell this and make it successful? We look for the High for Heat program, which you know has been very successful in trying to demonstrate a safety case and you know building whole streets and houses to test various systems and checking diffusion levels. And, and a number of other countries have done this as well. Uh, it does seem that quite methodical approach. And maybe actually I'm wondering if we need that more emotive response. Is that maybe the, the trick that sometimes the more engineering heavy sectors like nuclear and hydrogen miss is that it's not about convincing other engineers this is a good idea. It's about convincing the general public who's never going to understand the nuance of the technical bit. But what they need to understand is, you know, what is the basic high level safety? Is it manageable? Yes or no. And what is the actual end benefit to them? Why should they care about it? Okay, so is that what they need to know? So I, I, I wonder about that because you often make the comparison to you don't advertise air travel by being the safest aeroplane that you can travel in. Like that is not some, that would actually put me off. <laughs> this aeroplane is really safe. Um, I think the comparison that you need to do is you need to make it exciting. You know, look what we can do with this. We can run your car much further on a smaller amount of fuel. We can keep it local. We can keep the same structures that you have where you turn up to the, you know, the, the filling station and you fill up your car with hydrogen and off you go and you can go for 600 miles and it's great. You know, these are really exciting opportunities. And I think it's it's kind of like stop explaining the engineering because like you're going to explain a nuclear reactor or a, how a steam methane reformer and carbon capture and storage work together people will die from boredom because it's a really nerdy subject so i think what you have to do is you have to make it exciting and that it's going to enable these other things these possibilities for your life you know you're going to have a great amount of power that is very low carbon that you are going to pay less for it that you are going to have cleaner air that you're going to have more forests because they're not going to be poisoned by whatever it is that you're doing in your local industry. So I think we have to sort of change the discussion and rather than making it about the real detail of something, because you don't spend your time explaining how a wind turbine works to people because it's kind of obvious. So I think, you know, we just have to say that these things work and they're brilliant. Um, you know, we should use more of them. And I, I think we kind of need to move away a little bit from trying to make sure that everyone's got their um, you know, GCSE or high school diploma in hydrogen production and nuclear power. And Jen, before before we let you go and return return to your more important work than uh, recording podcasts with us, uh, one of the questions I know Chris wanted to limit this question to the UK, which is probably wise because it's going to be a very broad question. But at the same time, I want to give you the choice to uh, to talk about the world, not just the UK here. So, uh, just from your perspective, I mean, is there are there any particular projects, project concepts uh, that you know of uh, in the hydrogen sector right now? that uh, are particularly exciting from your standpoint or from the engineering standpoint or anything that stands out to you right now? I think I'd probably go with, you know, where we're likely to see the first proper applications of hydrogen production, possibly carbon capture and storage and hydrogen use is in the industrial clusters. So in the UK, we've got a series of industrial clusters in the east and west of England and South Wales. And um, I think there might be one up in Scotland as well, but there are these industrial clusters. and Way back in the past, they, we used to have something called um, the Industrial Symbiosis Programme, which was, you know, in the early 2000s here in the UK. And that looked at exactly the same questions that the clusters are looking at. How do you work together? How do you provide feedstocks? How do you get rid of waste? How do you manage this working all together? And so for me, this is really exciting because it looks at the system engineering element of it. How do you connect these things all together? 
and how do you work towards shared goals? So I think those projects are exciting. I'd be really interested to see who kind of steps out first and says, yes, we've done this. And it also combines, you know, offshore wind in some places as well. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And I know that our offshore um, catapult here has recently produced a report on how hydrogen can work with offshore wind. And then there's, you know, all of these aspects of desalination and things like that as well. So there is a lot of really exciting work happening. I think my biggest concern um, as an engineer is that we're not moving forward quite as rapidly as I think we should be. So if you take when I wrote my PhD was 10 years ago, and I think that the conversations haven't moved on that far. I did three case studies on South Wales, Teesside, which is the northeast of England and London. And actually, there's not a huge amount of difference to what is happening now as there was 10 years ago. So it is that case of, I mean, we were in a bit of a peak for hydrogen back then. So we've went then into a trough and we've come back into a peak. And what we don't want to do is lose that momentum. We want to make sure that we actually deliver on some of the possibilities. Yeah, and I, think, I mean, that's, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That, you know, the opportunities and possibilities are there. But we've got to make sure that uh, we're capturing and making the most of them. I mean, my actual question to Andrew, just put to you, Jen, I've sent him so many questions, to be fair to the poor guy. Um, is there one project somewhere in the world that you've seen that you think is really exciting and special and why? Something that people might not be aware of that you've heard of and you've gone, ooh, that's really cool. In the hydrogen space, obviously. I'm sure generally there may be those, but in the hydrogen space. I don't think it's necessarily one that people haven't heard of. Um, I love what they're doing on Orkney. Um, I love conceptually the idea that a lack of something causes you to do something else. And I think that, you know, they've created an environment where everybody now looks to them for both uh, a group of people who've got together, they've produced hydrogen using excess wind. They're now looking at, you know, how to use it in aircraft. I mean, this is, it, it's exciting and yet slightly terrifying at the same time. But I, I look to projects like that that are actually small, but they offer that regionalization that I talked about earlier that allows you to think about, well, how could the world operate in a slightly different way that enables the resources that each community has to work with, and then they can deliver better, greener, cleaner solutions for their community. So I think, you know, that's a really exciting piece of engineering or pieces of engineering fitting together up there. So boats, planes, electrolysis, wind turbines, all of these things to create this really nice sort of energy system. I think we can largely uh, leave it there. I think it's a good note to end on. Uh, but speaking of pieces of engineering, this will be a surprise question to Chris and Patrick, but I did forewarn uh, Jen that this might be coming. Uh, I've got your bio up here on the IMECI website. And down here at the bottom, it says favorite engineering innovation. And you list three. There's Toyota Prius. I think that's a good one. Then roller skates. And then this is the one that really caught my eye, which was the recliner. So from an engineering perspective, I'm curious about the recliner a little bit. As the top three greatest inventions of all time, where does it fit? Well, what can't you like more than a chair that you can lie down in? I mean, this is just one of the greatest inventions ever. And I recently replaced my reclining sofa, which was a very straightforward mechanical pull the lever and throw yourself backwards. And it was just marvelous with an electric one, which failed. And it, it doesn't have the same, you know, straightforward mechanical click clunk maneuver that you do in a recliner it's a sort of buzzing slow moving recliner so i think you know old school bit of straightforward mechanical pull the lever flick the chair back i mean it's just the greatest invention ever and i don't know who's responsible for it but i, I it's probably been around for a really long time yeah so obviously a, a hydrogen electric recliner is not a winner there <laughs> I'm going to say, you, you've made the case, though. I think maybe a, maybe a theme for another podcast, guys. We could do a recliner-focused one. So this may be a, maybe a start of a new, a new idea. Jen is going to be bombarded by product reviewers after this, asking them to test their recliner. Well, you know, with my fails over, I'd be really happy to test out <laughs> anyone's recliner. Well... Guys, uh, what are what are our key takeaways on that one? Let's let's start with Chris. Obviously, um, I'm very biased here. I, I've known Jen for a little while now. Um, I think she's great. I mean, I think what what's really interesting is the idea of uh, not just talking about net zero, but also talking about sustainability. I think that was a really important takeaway. I think it's a really interesting and actually quite a complicated one because I think a little bit in this 
uh, emerging space, we tend to kind of have a quite sort of jigashar view of this is a massive economic opportunity and this is a huge growth story. And it kind of, I think that's how we've almost framed it. That's how we get people excited. It's an investment, it's a business. That's how the growth comes. That's, you know, it's, that's, that's what's exciting. But actually, you know, Jen is right to point out it, we can't just talk about getting to zero emissions at the expense of everything else, right? I mean, the whole idea has also got to be a sustainability story. And at the core of that are these quite difficult questions sometimes for renewables and, you know, not just solar and wind, which I thought she talked to eloquently, but also hydrogen. Um, you know, I think it's also a good point that she's made to talk around that, that some of these ideas have been looked at before and the fact that actually people were looking at industrial clusters and how they could work more efficiently in the UK 10 years ago. And a number of those discussions happening 10 years ago are now sort of happening again and, and they haven't moved forward. And, you know, obviously encouraging to hear that, you know, we've moved a long way in the last 20 years, but... I think that sort of call to arms of we need people to be bold. We need people to actually engage seriously with this. We need to think creatively and dynamically. And we also need to think locally as well. We need to take in lessons that are going on at the global scale and think about how we can share ideas. But we need to also remember that uh, the idea of just building a few things from a very kind of command and control basis doesn't necessarily make sense. And I think finishing the discussion on the Orkies is a nice way to land on that because it is a really good and interesting example. So I thought a lot to like there, and admittedly quite different from a lot of our previous episodes, but um, I think in terms of giving a different perspective on the show, um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and Patrick, how about from your end? What, uh, what did you think about uh, Jin's uh, discussion around the, the nuclear side of things? That that seemed pretty interesting to me, and I was curious to hear, hear her answer, so I'm glad you asked it. What, what did you think of her response about that? Like, like look, uh, the nuclear sector is contentious, the world over. I don't think there's a country where it exists where there isn't some level of resistance. I, uh, there are places certainly where it's more positive, but you know, like what we're getting into here is is, is what is the the makeup and, and design of of the entire you know system, right? And there's definitely you know I think there's there's quite a bit more kind of advocacy or engagement going on right now around using existing nuclear resources with a view to producing things like hydrogen that can be a, a zero carbon molecule rather than necessarily talking to it as a let's build another generation of of uh, or a, renew the nuclear fleet right so there's there's a there's quite a bit of nuance here having said that you know at the end of the day if 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 the target is net zero 2050 these things have to kind of be on the table right so, and i and i think you know uh, i think you know, critically to, to Jen's point, it, it, it's, you know, the nuclear resources that we have are, you know, powering the grid today. And if they can be used more efficiently and provide us a, a further pathway or, or enhance a, a specific pathway towards that net zero goal, then, you know, it's kind of a case of why aren't we doing it or why wouldn't we do it? Um, there's a lot of dynamics that go into that then. Then you end up having conversations about, you know, transition design and, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and the implications for rollout of things that get you maybe in the, the longer run, you know, further down that, you know, low impact, sustainable pathway, right? It's a fair point and it's, a, and it's a, something that is going to have to be part of the conversation. You know, when we start to scale these, uh, these opportunities and, and, you know, look, to, to speak a little bit of what Chris just mentioned around the, you know, looking at it as the total pie, the, the huge industry that it can be, the opportunity for huge investment that it can be. Um, the thing that we often forget is that in that, um, you then create a competitive market between different sectors. So whether you use hydrogen as a feedstock or as a fuel or as you know uh, anything else and any one of the, the other use cases we've talked about, suddenly rather than having you know differentiated commodities, we have a single commodity and, and then we have a production and scale challenge uh, that, that then becomes quite quite impactful. So we've got a what about 110 million metric ton market per annum around now, you know, including, you know, non you know, non non um, direct production, shall we say, like byproduct production. Um, if that scales, you know, multiple fold, you know, where are the use points? What are the scale of the use points? And what does that mean for the actual supply? Right? Like we we all, I think, agree that that goes up. But you know, if the premium for hydrogen is in fueling of, of vehicles, uh, what does that mean for the transition of other sectors? And, and something like nuclear, given the scale of nuclear resources, offers an avenue for very, very large levels of production that, that is at least worth having that conversation about. Chris uh, kind of 
pushed a little bit on, on a topic that uh, we started earlier on in the conversation with, and I'd be curious to hear both of you guys address it. Uh, but Chris, I thought it was an interesting point and a good one. Uh, and maybe it's not that uncommon of a point, but talking about the waste to hydrogen sector, right? Uh, you talked about efficiency losses that uh, present some challenges in there, right? And uh, I think uh, Jen talked nicely about it and gave a gave a solid answer, but I uh, wanted to hear Patrick as well, but your guys' thoughts on uh, whether or not those efficiency losses are so troubling or so challenging that that, that sector is uh, perhaps not your favorite approach to, to hydrogen production, correct? Right. Uh, so, so, look, I mean, to be clear, um, and, and thank you for asking the question, to be clear, I, I think there are absolutely applications for um, hydrogen from biogas. Absolutely on the record there are. Um, I, I think simply the point that I was just trying to make is that um, if you, even if you use the most efficient modular reforming technologies out there, so 76 80% conversion efficiency, you're still losing 20 to 24% of the energy, right? And, and there are a number of people who would say, well, if I could just use that biogas directly, because I'm just going to combust it directly as a green gas, or I can just compress it and put it straight into a CNG vehicle, why would I, you know, or I just clean it a little bit and put it straight into uh, the natural transmission system, why would I use sure. it? That's where there is a very live discussion. Um, and, it's, and it's a really interesting discussion, but equally, there are some cases where um, that isn't an option because actually, there, there isn't any obvious vehicle refueling capabilities nearby and for CNG, um, where actually uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense to put it into the national gas transmission system still. Um, maybe you're not even immediately near a large connection to do that. Um, and for example, it's worth noting that in places like the UK and I think in many other countries, um, biogas from people like wastewater treatment sites and um, you know, people who run out of river digesters, quite often it's combusted for power generation. You know, and then it's seen as a renewable form of green dispatchable power. Um, you know, and, and it is. It is a green form of power, and it is a um, it is a good. Yeah, if you're using biogas to combust and provide electricity to the grid, it's a green. It is a green electricity. Ooh, controversy. controversy. It's nothing. Yes. That's what I'm looking for, guys. Let's 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 be let's be clear about green gases here for just a second, right? Like one of the one of the plays that that the hydrogen offers, especially when we talk about you know kind of uh, the the kind of transition in terms of natural gases or natural gas transition to hydrogen, is that you go from having a molecule that contains carbon to one that doesn't. The benefit that you get from biogas is number one, you're not extracting, you know, the methane methane from, you know, existing, you know, fossil fuels, and it is waste capture, right? So this is, goes into the atmosphere as methane if you don't capture it, which has a, an, a multi, I forget what it is, but a multi-factor uh, or a multiple uh, larger greenhouse gas. So 20 impact. times, 20 times. 20 times, it, it, yeah. It's got, it's got like, yeah, 20 years lifetime or something in right. the atmosphere, yeah. Right, but if you burn that gas you still emit the same CO2 content because the, the methane molecule correct, correct, is combusted, yeah. right? So unless you're putting CCS and capturing the carbon that, that at the combustion point, that is still a, a methane molecule. You are still emitting CO2, right? Correct, but it's so, a carbon accounting question, Patrick. It's not a carbon accounting question. It is, it is a definitional point of like, is this thing green? And the answer is no, it has carbon content. I, actually, I mean, this is, this is, by the way, a very loud question because I actually don't believe in the UK it is considered to be, as it were, uh, it, uh, from what I understand, and, and I'm sure our listeners will have different views on this, um, biogas, at least as far as, a, as I understand from the regulatory side, is seen to be a green gas, even though you're right, it is methane. It is seen as green because the CO2 it emits is considered to be, as it were, a neutral or in some cases even defined as negative, right? Because as you rightly pointed out, if it hadn't been combusted and it had just been allowed to be released into the atmosphere as methane, it would have had a more dramatic impact, albeit at a short period of time, than if it was combusted. So here, here's where we have to be particularly careful though, right? Because in, a, in a, an intentional bioenergy stream, right, where you are you know, taking up like, for instance, a biomass product and, and you are turning it into a gas and then regrowing the feedstock, then we can talk about the carbon sink aspect for sure. When it's when it's just waste and then it's feed and it's combustion, um, you know, there can be a, 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 a lower greenhouse gas impact. The question is, does that make it green? And then our question, the definition of green ceases to be no carbon or, or low carbon and ce- uh, starts to be just 
you know, uh, less less than uh, a methane release, a byproduct methane release. That to me doesn't strike me as particularly plausible. And, and don't get me wrong, right? Biogas is better than, you know, kind of just having, you know, random kind of natural gas uh, kind of extraction, right? Like, or large scale natural gas extraction and just um, kind of doing standard. But like, it, it comes back to the point of like, are we capturing the carbon or does this emit carbon? The answer is it does emit carbon. And that is the advantage fundamentally we have when we talk about hydrogen versus other gases. Because if it's hydrogen and you capture 60% off a steam methane reformer, then you have a, a gas, a green molecule, or well, sorry, a blue molecule in that instance, right? Which has 60% less of the carbon uh, emitted per kilo or per, per natural cubic meter, whatever measure you want, than the, the base gas would have, right? If you just run the biogas and you burn the biogas, then it has 100% of the carbon the gas has. I mean, just to run to Andrew's question, Andrew's question is talking about why is biogas interesting in the, you know, why is bioenergy and hydrogen interesting or not and how is it treated? And I, you know, from a UK perspective where I'm most sort of confident drawing on information, one of the reasons people are discussing this and looking at this is to say, at the moment, biogas qualifies under the renewable obligation, which is an old feed-in mechanism the government created to incentivize wastewater treatment companies to use their um, methane that was coming off from the treatment of waste and to convert that into biogas, which they then combusted into uh, turbines and generate electricity. And that was considered to be green electricity, hence it qualified for renewable obligation. Now, that is coming to the end of its life. And the question is, what is the next thing that we do with that? Because Yes, from a, even though the government saw it as renewable, hence why it qualified for the renewable obligation, it has had an air quality impact because waste biogas is not pure methane. It has all sorts of other impurities in it, which creates a lot of localized air quality issues. So one of the big questions now is what else can you do with it instead? So the government does consider in the UK anyway, and I believe this is similar in a number of European markets, and I believe even in some US markets, that if you were to take hydrogen from biogas and reform it, that qualifies as that hydrogen extracted from a biofuel does qualify as a green fuel for transportation. And because it's then a transport molecule as opposed to a power fuel source, there's a higher margin there as well. Um, so that then is, is an interesting area that people are looking at in the UK is to say, is that then the next step? And, and that was really coming back to then to Jen's point, which is this whole thing of, you know, how do you optimize, how do you use this? And the fact that, you know, as you said, engineers and, you know, I have this talking to some of the engineer colleagues in my own team. Um, you know, they, they do like simplicity. They like to try and avoid uh, conversion efficiency losses. And part of where the hydrogen world is going to go and part of where the energy system is going to go is going to be a compromise between that, um, as it were, thermodynamically optimized outcome, which engineers might be able to talk to and see, and then what do consumers actually want and what is easiest for consumers. And I think Jim was alluding to that in the, um, the UK government just did a citizens assembly on, you know, where citizens want to see decarbonisation. The, the most popular decarbonisation route for uh, homes was hydrogen. 84% of people said they want to see hydrogen in homes. Why? Because people like gas. They're familiar with gas. It's easy. It doesn't mean that that's necessarily the optimum that all 27 million homes in the UK convert purely to hydrogen. Um, but that's the optimum. So wherever we're going to land is going to be a halfway house between those two things. And I think Jen, again, was right to emphasize the key is making it interesting, making it sexy and making it compelling. And that is how the sector is going to evolve because it's so technical. Even me and Patrick arguing over how you qualify renewable is such an early conversation that the average public just doesn't care. And, and I think that is something that was a really important takeaway from Jen's discussion. So before before we get too too far away, like, look, the biogases sector is important. It is very, very important. And, you know, even when we talked, you know, we've talked to a few folks now about like, a, you know, SMR style or, or at least, you know, methane kind of separation technologies. Um, biogas is, is something they, they all talk about. Um, you know, we, we're not getting away from the fact that we, we, we have, you know, a transition in our midst around these, these technologies and these use points. Um, it's about you know, kind of clarity and understanding. And, and, and look, the, the, the point that, uh, that Jen made, and, and I think you just alluded to, Chris, is absolutely true. This has to be compelling. And I think this actually speaks to your question, actually, to Jen earlier as well. Part of the reason we've ended up in the slightly overly nerdy uh, kind of 
you know, health and safety world a little bit more is because conventional consumers of hydrogen have been, you know, kind of large industrial players who have more questions around the safety and use of the gas. Um, and rather than, uh, you know, the, the average person on the street using it in their home or in their car or in, you know, anything, any of the goods that they use on a day-to-day basis. So it is, it is important to kind of understand that this market is, is also changing. You know, I, I just I just can't help but wonder if we end up in a situation where the kind of the credentials and classifications as as, as arbitrary and maybe as non non effective as, as they are in, in, in a kind of a, a very deliberate kind of accounting sense of it. But like the, the, the greens, the blues, the yellows, the turquoise, the whatever else are, are the roadmap for people to simply understand what they are consuming. And that's and, and that's where their power lies. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Dr. Jennifer Baxter, Head of Engineering at the Institution for Mechanical Engineers. Really fascinating to get the engineer's perspective on the hydrogen space and the future of the hydrogen sector. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their unparalleled co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And... As you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening and we hope you will join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen.